Hi, this is Finn from Open City. If you're anything like me and my colleagues, you think about climate change a lot. How to prevent the worst of global heating and mitigate against its impact is a theme we tackle on the show again and again. It could be a daunting subject, but amid the climate emergency, we have a critical ally, trees. Trees are a carbon sink. They suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and lock it safely away in timber. So understandably, there are some who say the solution to climate breakdown is simple. Plant more trees. Millions of them. Billions of them. Maybe even trillions of them. It's an intriguing idea, but not without its critics. So today we're going to play you a special episode from Words on Wood, a brilliant podcast all about timber, trees, design and making, produced by our friends Desenio and the American Hardwoods Export Council. In this episode, which is titled A Trillion Trees, the Words on Wood team are joined by multi-award winning science and environmental writer Fred Pierce, whose groundbreaking work covering the natural world spans at least 15 books. It's a fascinating and surprising conversation, which I think you'll really enjoy. And if you do, the wider Words on Wood series is really worth following. They explore a vast set of themes connected to trees, featuring interviews with inspiring speakers, including educators, architects and craftspeople. Each episode is beautifully concise, carefully edited and has, in my opinion, the best intro music of any of the podcasts I listen to. I highly recommend it. Anyway, that's enough from me. From everyone at Open City... Merry Christmas, and here's A Trillion Trees from Words on Wood. Hello, and welcome to Words on Wood. I'm joined today by Fred Pierce, who is a multi-award-winning science and environmental writer whose groundbreaking work covering the natural world has taken him to over 87 countries on his reporting trips, and he's written at least 15 books. He's the former news editor of The New Scientist, and he writes for The Guardian, The National Geographic, and The Washington Post. His latest book, A Trillion Trees, How We Can Reforest Our World, was published this year by Granta Books, and it busts some serious myths. Fred, You've written books on everything from the science of tipping points to land grabs, water issues to population time bombs. What was it that led you to choose trees as your subject for this latest book? Well, it seems like trees is uh, have reached their moment, really. I mean, when you get everybody from Donald Trump to Greenpeace to you know the Davos uh, conferences all demanding a trillion trees. You know, that's been the phrase that's been around for, you know, two or three years now, a trillion trees. Um, nobody thinks how big a number a trillion is. You know, there aren't there aren't a trillion stars in the Milky Way. You know, a trillion is a lot. So people use this number rather grandly. But I, I thought, well, could we plant a, tree, a trillion trees? Have we got room for a trillion trees? What would happen if we did plant a trillion trees? Have we had a trillion trees before? And how would it be best to do it? So, I mean, I got into lots of other things along the way, but that was my starting point. Reading this book has completely reorientated the way that I think about trees. I think I had definitely fallen into this trap of thinking of them as benign and benevolent carbon sinks that were quite passive, whereas you make it quite clear in your opening chapters that they are running on their own timescale and trees almost terraform the climate around them to suit trees. Going in, did you have any preconceived notions about trees? Did you know a lot about them? 
Well, I mean, as, a, as an environment journalist, I've been writing about trees and forests, perhaps. I mean, I'm not a tree. I'm not a tree nerd. You know, I could walk down a street and not be able to tell you what the trees in the in the street were. You know, I'm not. I don't know the name of every tree, but I'm really very interested in forests and their part in our lives and their part in in the climate system. And as you say, they're not passive at all. Uh, we talk about rainforests and we kind of think of them as well. They they grow in places where there's a lot of rain. Well, that's true, but they also make a lot of rain. You know, they create the rain there. And in particular, they recycle rain to produce rain downwind. So if you look at forested part of the world, especially rainforest tropical regions, you find that as you go from the coast inland, which you'd expect to get drier because you're further from the ocean where the water comes from, actually they often get wetter. The rain's coming down, they're recycling that rain, they're putting the moisture back into the air as part of their growth processes, and they're putting it into the clouds and the winds blow it further inland and it rains some more. So they're creating the rain for, for, for forests all the way inland. We know quite a lot, people have talked about how they, they keep the rivers going, they, they can prevent floods and they can uh, prevent droughts because they, the, the soils of forests capture moisture and then, then they will sort of deliver it on a more regular basis that you'd get, otherwise you don't get the flash floods. So they also control, if you like, hydrology on the land surface as well. So they're massively important players. And that means that if we, if we lose the forests, well, we're destroying the, the soils, but we're also destroying the rivers and we're destroying the climate. So, you know, we, we used these days to thinking about trees as well, they soak up carbon. And that is true, they soak up a lot of carbon. There's more carbon in the world's trees than we humans have emitted from all our industrial activity over 200 years. So they really matter, but they matter um, for climate in lots of other ways apart from carbon. So that's a kind of, that was another of the starting points, I think, for the book, to look at all that and then to think about, well, um, if we're going to restore forests, how is it best to do it? And my simple answer to that is that we don't do a lot of planting. Everybody talks about planting, whether it's a trillion trees or, you know, a few million in, uh, in an individual country or, you know, people have different numbers. Um, but actually what we need to do is not do planting, is to stand back and let nature do it, because nature will do it better than we do. Nature knows better how, what to plant where, if you like, because, the, you, know, it, you know, birds will move the seeds around and the ones that will take hold will be the ones that are going to do best on a particular landscape. So we should get away from thinking ourselves as ecosystem engineers planting trees and try, try and stand back and let nature do it. Most of the time she will. Most of the reforesting going on on the planet these days, and there's quite a lot happening. We have more trees than we had 50 years ago. That's a surprise that I discovered. Um, most of that is being done by nature, not by humans. Yeah, this is one of the really, I mean... I, perhaps you could call it controversial elements of your book that you say that planting especially mass planting projects of trees is actually not only a kind of neutral thing that you can do but it actually can be really bad for the for the local environment and for the general climate could you talk a little bit more about that i'm not an absolutist on this i'm not saying never plant a tree you know i mean i uh, I've planted a few trees along my uh, along my way, and I've been part of community planting projects and things like that. That's that's fine. I don't, you know, it's nice to connect with trees and to put something in the ground and put it in your garden or wherever. It's nice to create a woodland if you want to, if you've got some land or your community's got some land. That's all good. What I, what I'm saying is, if you like the heavy lifting, if we want a trillion trees, 
Well, that's a thousand trees every second for the next 30 years, because as I say, a trillion is a big number. Humans aren't going to do that. Or if we did it, we would have to create this huge industry um, and it would be it would be disastrous. We'd be grabbing land off all sorts of indigenous communities. We'd be destroying farmland. We'd be digging up the landscape to do the planting. It would be a horrendous industrial activity. Whereas nature is much better at doing it with, and has a much smaller kind of footprint as it does it. So I, what I say is that, is that the, the heavy lifting, because we, we do need to re, reforest the planet. Uh, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is we used to have six trillion trees. We're now down to three trillion trees. So it would be quite nice to get, get an extra trillion back. And I think that's, that's doable. I think we have the land to do it. Um, we have plenty of forest communities who would love to have their, their forests protected and, um, and would love to sort of be stewards of forests. And there are lots of people outside the forest world who, who are in favour of this as well. So, yeah, let's do it. But let's not try and plant them all because that's, that's the crazy way of doing it. It's also very expensive. I mean, you know, why, why spend that money when nature will do the planting for you? Yeah, I really enjoyed the case study you had of Puerto Rico, where these alien species of, was it tulip trees, had kind of come in where forests have been cleared and recycled the soil, put nutrients back in so that more native species could grow there. And then the hurricanes came and ripped out the tulip trees. And so you had remaining forests of now mainly returned to native woodlands and it's this kind of crazy funky things that nature can do if you leave them on your own and you coined this phrase natural rehab which I really enjoyed so could you break down how a forest does replant itself with zero human interference well usually there are some other trees around I mean do you, you'll occasionally get places where there are literally no trees and not even any roots in the ground or anything for hundreds of miles and okay you can need to do some planting then but mostly there are trees around Mostly there are birds around that will that will move the seeds. Uh, you know, they live in trees and they uh, they will excrete those seeds somewhere else. And those seeds will probably have a chance to grow. And it might take, you know, four or five years to get them going, but it'll happen. So nature is very good at um, anywhere where there should be forests. Nature will, will very quickly recreate them. And we can see this around the world. Um, I mean, I'm always fascinated to discover that in almost everywhere in Europe and North America, where we've abandoned quite a lot of farmland over the over recent decades, almost everywhere that we abandon farmland, within 20 or 30 years, you've got big trees coming back, the forests are being restored. North America is one of the really interesting case studies in your book, where they have had this kind of period of severe deforestation, and then almost accidental hardwood regeneration. North America has a has a fascinating forest history. Um, we often think of it's just a case of lots of forests and then they get deforested and that's the end of the story. But what we find is that the forests and indeed the land in general in North America was fairly heavily managed and used uh, and conserved by Native Americans before Europeans showed up. After Europeans showed up, the declining population of the region meant that there was a resurgence in forestry um, in sort of the 16th century because the land was being less used because there were less people on the continent. And then when Europeans started moving west, those resurgent forests were destroyed again till we got to the point at the beginning of the 20th century when the, um, most of North America's forests, or certainly the U.S.'s forests, were gone. States like Pennsylvania had been largely forest covered, 
um, were denuded of forests, true in most of eastern uh, US, at which point the market for timber began to decline. There was less in need for fuel and for, uh, for firewood and so on. And also the demand for agricultural land began to reduce. And at that point, so 100 years ago, more or less, forests began to resurge, sometimes through planting, but to a great extent through natural regeneration. So the past century has seen an extraordinary restoration of North American forests, which is not something which we talk about, but is really a very large scale phenomenon now. Um, and means that America is greener than it has been for a long time. And was this completely accidental? Were there policies about reduction of farming or was it simply demographic change again? Uh, it's a mixture of the two. I mean, reduction in demand for agricultural land came about through partly through America importing more crops, but more particularly through more intensive agriculture. And also um, something we don't think about very much, but there was much less demand to grow crops, to feed horses, because uh, horses ceased to be the main form of transport in North America, and we took to the automobiles. So um, that uh, feeding horses was, a, was a, a large drain on agricultural land. So for a number of reasons, less land was needed for growing crops, and less trees were needed for, uh, for the regular economy, for fuel and uh, lumber and so on. Um, so the pressures on forests were less. And also, America simply ran out of forests, so there were new policies to restore forestry. So during the New Deal period, there were thousands of people going out planting forests and national forests were established, um, sometimes for conservation, but also as productive forests. So through a mixture of natural regeneration and policy decisions and changing economics, uh, we've just had a huge scale restoration of North American forests, particularly in the East, but really across the whole country. What struck me as, as, a, as a European coming to America, we used in, in Europe to think of America being the sort of biggest and the brashest and the boldest and the most high tech and all the rest of it. But when you actually go into American forests and you see how American forestry is done, it's done largely by relatively small companies, uh, sawmills and furniture manufacturers and people are in there. They're not huge, most of them. The landowners are there are large landowners, but most of the landowners are quite small scale. And much of the chainsaw cutting is done by small family firms, individuals. And, you know, I met sort of grandfather and grand, grandson teams working away in the forests, uh, taking out individual trees according to um, the requirements of the sawmill companies. And I found that the sawmill companies were very sophisticated about uh, what they asked for and how many trees they asked to be cut down from particular areas because they have an interest in sustaining their own source material for the long term. So I found uh, nothing's perfect and, and, you know, things can go wrong um, and perverse markets can have, you know, bad effects. But a system with a lot of resilience to it and a lot of ability to think through the consequences of cutting trees out of the forest and make sure that it doesn't go too far and that they're thinking for the long term. And perhaps that's something also which they're learning from the indigenous forest managers who've always thought in the long term, who've never thought how much money can we make in the next five years, in the next two years. 
They're thinking about how can we leave a forest for the next generation, a forest for people in a hundred years time, which will still be uh, producing valuable timber. So one of the most fascinating stories is the story of the, the Menominee people in uh, northern Wisconsin, who through a whole series of historical reasons connected with treaties done with, with European uh, colonists, um, gained got, had full control over uh, a substantial forested area in the era uh, reservation in northern Wisconsin, which they've been managing in a highly sophisticated way for at least 150 years. So that's the time they've had title to that land. The Menominee have a very sophisticated system based on marking every tree, um, measuring trees, um, establishing areas where they're going to cut trees and what trees they're going to cut. Essentially, they cut the older trees, they cut the sick trees, they cut the trees that will provide the best timber. So they've been practicing what foresters now talk about wanting to do, which is to do sustainable forestry and get their uh, their certification for their sustainable forests. Modern silviculture, modern forest foresters are now coming to them to find out how they do it because they've been taking large amounts of timber out of their forests, but they still have more forest than they had 100 years ago and 50 years ago and 150 years ago. Was there anything you think that European forestry could learn from the American method, or is it totally different because they're just operating on a vastly different scale? I think, well, the, the forests themselves naturally in Europe are, are quite different. North America has very diverse forests, especially the hardwood forests, um, where I've been looking at a lot, a lot of different species all growing together. And Euro European forests tend to be sort of beech forests or, or you know, oak forests or whatever they are. They tend, they tend not to have so many species. And uh, so they're more like monocultures. They're a bit more like plantations, I guess you'd have to say, naturally. So there are differences, but I think Europeans can learn a lot from American management of forests and, and simply have a sustainable culture. We have to be very careful, I think, in both continents not to make too many demands on our forests. The paper business used to be uh, one of the main reasons why forests were being chopped down in a very unsustainable way, just to provide pulp for, for paper. Um, these days, uh, Forests are being cut down to produce biomass to burn in power stations, which um, some people regard as a green form of electricity. But if you're chopping down an awful lot of trees, it ceases to be green very quickly. To some extent, we've outsourced the bad stuff to um, Indonesia and Brazil and elsewhere, where they're causing outright deforestation by over-harvesting their forests. So we need to be thinking about uh, making sure that we're not just looking after our own forests and trashing everybody else's by importing a product. Europe just this, this week, uh, just this last little while, has passed legislation banning imports of commodity crops. Uh, might be palm oil, might be wheat, might be might even be leather from from cattle, which is, which have been grown on land cleared of forest to provide the space for the crops. So Europe is passing legislation on that. There is some legislation in the US on timber products, but we need to think about these other activities that cause destruction of forests. So saving the world's forests and restoring the world's forests is going to be complicated. And it's not just about the timber industry, what we cut down, it's what we use the land for and what we need the land for.
who do you think is currently in the best position to manage the planet's trees? Let's not put all the forests that we like and all the areas that we like to forest uh, behind fences in national parks and put in government rangers to look after them and all that. Let's give them back, and often it is giving them back, to local communities. Um, I wrote a book talking about, you mentioned at the start, about land grabbing, and one of the areas of land grabbing that frightened me most was the amount of what, 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 I, what I call green grab. In other words, conservation groups, governments, but also, you know, conservation organisations of one sort or another, taking land from, from communities who managed them and looked after them and put that land behind, uh, behind the fences of national parks. And that's usually been a disastrous because um, quite often outsiders come in and start chopping down the trees and trying to make money off the land, whereas they'd have been much better off uh, leaving the local communities in charge because they know how to make money out of those forests without destroying them. So perhaps my final thing in the book is that we need to reconnect with forests. We need to relearn how to live with forests, not to you know hide them away or leave them for nature. I mean, nature will, will look after them very nicely, but, but to harvest them and to use them and to make profits from them and to live from them without destroying them. And for most of human existence, we've been very good at that. And I think in the last couple of hundred years, we've got really bad at that. So let's relearn it. And that was so clear from the book, the amount that we've forgotten collectively across lots of cultures about how to manage forests, how to live with them. There's so many stories you told about pre-contact Colombia, where people were actually doing very sophisticated agroforestry, living across the banks of rivers and using the forest as their own cultivated orchard or Native American tribes who would very carefully burn and control wildfires for their forests and then also even the idea which I'd never heard before about how the sequoia trees they think may have actually been planted as groves that they weren't necessarily just organically there. Do you think that western science and conservation groups are ready to acknowledge that indigenous people probably know more about how to cultivate this land or is there still some resistance? Oh, there's resistance, but I think they are. I mean, I talk to ecologists who now say, you know, if you want to talk to the professors of ecology, go, you know, go into the rainforest and talk to the people who have, uh, you know, 60 different names for something that ecologists only have one name for because they understand them better. One of the things that really surprised me, and I think is surprising a lot of people, is how when we talk about pristine forests, there, there really aren't any pristine forests out there. You go to the you know, the, the most remote parts of the Amazon or the Congo Basin. Um, these are um, they're natural landscapes to some extent, but they're also heavily kind of human engineered landscapes. I mean, there are a lot of planted trees in there, which were, uh, if you go to the Amazon, we, you know, the story is very, is very clear because it's very straightforward what happened when Europeans arrived. Before Europeans arrived, there were, it was not densely populated, but there were quite considerable populations throughout the Amazon and they had cities there and they were planting orchards and they did uh, sophisticated kind of earth moving to do agriculture and they did irrigation and they did flood protection. They did all sorts of things in the forest landscapes while keeping the forests by and large, not, not everywhere, but, but by and large. And then the Europeans showed up and diseases and warfare and so on and the, and the number of people crashed by more than 90, 95%. Uh, people have essentially sort of went back to the bush and all the sophisticated ways of living with the forest, much of which was more 
not not lost, but it was put in abeyance because there simply weren't the people to do it. Um, so then the forest recovered in many ways. So what we see now is is it like an overgrown garden rather than a pristine rainforest. And that's true most of the world. So most of the world's forests are not natural. They have natural aspects of them, but they're also partly sort of human creations. So ecologists are discovering this, but archaeologists are discovering this um, increasingly by, you know, just sort of digging up remains that they find. It's not just the pyramids that you, you occasionally find in sort of Guatemalan places. It's much more sort of subtle things that are almost hidden under the ground. Now, some people will say they'll be really disappointed by that. There's nothing pristine out there. How do you know? That's one level. That's quite a disappointing thing to discover. But I'm quite infused by it because it shows that we have used forests well. We have had a good relationship with forests in the past. Quite densely populated areas have maintained their trees. So why don't we rediscover that relationship? Why don't we do it again? We know now that nature is quite good at coming back. Um, if we do bad things, but also that we're quite good at living with forests if the circumstances are right. My judgment is that circumstances are more likely to be right if local people have control over their land. And that's why I've been, uh, you know, an enthusiast for, for pushing back against land grabbing of all sorts, because I think local people have the most, if you like, invested, if I can put it that way, in the natural environment, their natural landscapes, including their trees, and they will look after them better and have ways of collectively managing things. I don't want to be too idealistic about it because not everything is, is always perfect and the world is changing and you know money can corrupt lots of people. But I think that's our best shot. Um, and I do think it's kind of happening. You mentioned Puerto Rico where they've destroyed virtually all the forests and nature has started to come back, beginning with non-native tree species really because we created such a bad landscape that none of the native trees initially could return after we'd abandoned those farms. But now they are getting back and things are going on. Uh, the other story they tell from the same part of the world is Costa Rica, which when I was first writing as an environment journalist was like top of the league table for deforestation. You know, the forest cover there had gone down from about 70% to about 20% in just a few decades. The whole country, all its tropical rainforests were being wrecked to set up cattle ranches. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of it was going off to Burger King. I think Burger King had the big contract. So, you know, that's, that's a matter of public record. But I mean, uh, you know, it was all going off to, to, to feed us, basically. And then the government, about early 1990s, after the Earth Summit, the president got a sort of green enthusiasm about him. And he said, no, well, destroying our forests is creating floods and it's doing damage. So he said, why don't we stop it? So he started paying the ranchers not to clear forests to put cattle on, but to let the forests recover. Not planting them by and large, but letting the forests recover. And now the people who used to be ranchers are running eco-lodges and, and bringing in eco-tourists. And you find the eco-tourists are going there and they go, wow, look at this wonderful rainforest and all the bird life and they have a great time. And, you know, some of my friends have done exactly that. And when they come back, I say, of course, you did know that that was 20 years before that was a ranch. It only just recovered. They had no idea at all. They thought it was, you know, pristine rainforest. So you can do this. And forest cover has that now bounced back from 20% in the, in the late 1980s. It's now above 50% in Costa Rica again. And there are quite a few other countries doing similar things. And they're almost always 
one way or another local control. Now, in Costa Rica, it was mostly the existing landowners, the ranchers. But if you go to Nepal, say, which is another country that I wrote about as deforesting really, really fast 20 or 30 years ago, the government there said, well, we've got to do something about this. They couldn't manage their own forests. The state forests were being badly run and there were those Maoist rebellions going on and all sorts of kind of crazy stuff going on in the countryside. So they decided to create community managed forests. So they let community groups claim areas of the forest and old forest land and said, OK, it's yours. You manage it uh, however you want to do it, whether it's for timber or tourism, whatever you want to do, you manage it. So there are thousands of these community forests now all across Nepal. And the result is uh, a country that, you know, forest cover got down to 25% or something. It's now back up to about 45%. And that's community management. This is not indigenous communities. This is just kind of regular local people. If we give people control and let nature do its thing, we really can for reforest the planet, I believe. We can have those trillion trees. And that kind of touches on the issue of non-native trees, so trees that have been planted outside of their normal areas. It's interesting that you say that sometimes that could be good for climate change because, as you touch on in the book, sometimes it can be uh, not so great because they might not be adapted to pests that are either local or that come in from other areas and then you get invasive species that don't really work. Well, sometimes invasive species do work, of course, because of climate change. Suddenly it's right for them. You know, yeah, I, re I read a book called The New Wild, which argued rather, rather kind of controversially. I was trying to be controversial, really, but we, I, I was trying to be argumentative with ecologists to basically say, well, maybe, you know, maybe alien species are sometimes a good thing. Because what is certainly true is that if the climate system is changing and, you know, what, what was right for a particular ecosystem at one time, well, if the climate moves, Sure, the ecosystem has to move too in order to kind of keep up and maintain things a bit. So I think we have to be not precious about trying to stick with, you know, if we've got a nice forest ecosystem, it, it will need to change because the climate's changing and we should accept that and not try and stop it. So I get very worried when people say, oh, we, we've got to we've got to kind of maintain the ecosystem that we have now or, or perhaps one that we had 200 years ago. So some rewilding people want to sort of recreate what was there 200 years ago. And I, we can't do that. Honestly, we can't. And if we did, it would be like a garden. We constantly have to be kind of working at it to, to maintain it because things have changed too much. One of the fascinating things that I didn't know about was that Pennsylvania used to be known as the black cherry capital of the world. I mean, it had very large numbers of cherry, cherry trees, which were very highly sought after by furniture makers and architects and all sorts of people. But there's been a decline in the cherry tree in recent years and people were wondering why. So oaks are growing better, but the cherries, cherries seem to be growing less well. There's some recent science being done which suggested that actually the cherry trees were surviving in the polluted environment. Um, heavy fallout of nitrogen and other kinds of pollutions from the industrial belt regions of uh, Northeast America would... Um, the cherries, cherries loved it. The more nitrogen you could pour onto the land from this air pollution, the more the cherries loved it. And I guess some of the other trees didn't like it. So the cherry boom in that part of the world turned out to be largely as a result of air pollution. And now the air pollution is being cleaned up. You know, the rust belt is um, not putting, putting out the kind of pollution that it used to. Vehicles are getting cleaner and so on. With less nitrogen fallout, less pollution, the cherry is doing less well. 
I'm not saying we should be going back to uh, going back to air pollution, not at all. But you can see that there are some weird things that happen in what are forests, which are natural forests with natural cycles, but also have uh, or also influenced by human activity. And of course, down the road, and perhaps already, climate change is going to influence what grows and what doesn't grow as well. So we shouldn't kind of be romantic about this. These are not pristine forests, but they never were. You know, um, native management of forests took, took forests away from anything that would have been there without any humans. But they are forests that are sustainable, that with proper care, it's not a given, but with proper care, will, will survive into the long run. But they will be different. In some respects, some species will come, some species will go. But broadly speaking, they're the native species, and native species are likely to do better under almost all circumstances. That's really fascinating and kind of underscores what you are getting at with the book about how interconnected everything is, even if you can't see it, that if you kind of push one lever, things will change entirely. You also have several case studies in the book where humans have tried really, really hard to plant an entire forest and it has not generally gone well. I mean, it's obviously probably harder for you to dig up the the information on that because no one wants to talk about how they've planted a massive forest and it's dying off. But you have case studies in Israel, case studies in China where they've tried these mass planting programs and they don't they don't go that well. Now, often, often it's just choosing the wrong trees and being a bit, you know, not too clever about it. You plant a whole lot of trees, and it turns out they weren't quite the right trees. And they, uh, they, it turns out they, they take so much water from the soil that you land up damaging other ecosystems all around. Um, you know, you can have some bad effects. Monocultures are almost always bad. I've just been looking very recently about uh, mangrove restoration, uh, mangrove trees around our coastlines. You know, we've lost huge numbers of those in the in the last few decades because people have been clearing mangoes from their coastlines to put in prawn farm, uh, pra- you know, prawn ponds to grow prawns. Sometimes the prawn ponds don't do very well, and people now say, "Well, what do we do? Should we?" Do? And that, so there have been great movements in some countries to replant the mangroves, because the other thing that mangroves do is to protect you against rising sea levels and storms coming in from the oceans. They're a really good barrier. So for quite a lot of reasons why people want to put back mangroves. But the, the rate of success in planting mangroves has been dreadful. I think in Sri Lanka they found that, you know, they had, I forget how many sites, but, you know, dozens of sites where they'd gone and had replanting programs. And they went back 10 years later, they couldn't find most of them. There's simply nothing left. And that's partly done planting, but also because you have to have the right species. And if the waves are eroding the coastline, it won't survive. And there are lots of particular reasons on coastal areas why mangrove planting is a problem. But it does apply more generally. The success rate of planting trees is generally pretty low. Even if you sort of irrigate them for the first few years, which is, you know, in desert regions, people try and do that. But even so, you stop irrigating at some point and, you know, things will quite quickly go backwards and again the climate is changing so what you thought was a good idea to plant 20 years ago suddenly those trees won't survive i really enjoy the um the scientific studies that you do talk about in the books especially the ones that are quite controversial that there isn't consensus about the i think it's the russian scientists who have the theory that the forests make the winds was really really interesting that's fascinating. I mean, that's 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 quite. A, I'm not sure if it's cutting edge or, or just wacky, but yeah, there's there's some Russian scientists, physicists. I mean, these these are sort of nuclear physics, physicists who got into biology and trees and stuff because they like trees, and they 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 came up with this theory, and, and there's some really complex physics to back it up. 
of why trees and how they um, uh, they release moisture into the air. I talked earlier about how releasing moisture was creating rains. Um, you know, forests have other effects. They seed clouds. They do all sorts of weird things. And they came up with the argument that putting the moisture into the air was actually generating winds. And not just local winds, like sort of sea breeze kind of things, but winds that were traveling for thousands of kilometers across whole continents. And that a, a large number of trees really would do that, would maintain the wind coming off the Atlantic and going across Asia, potentially bringing moisture to keep Chinese fields growing their crops. So they're thinking really, really big scale. So I don't think it's proved, certainly not to everyone's satisfaction, but you know, they may, they may not just be generating rain, which I think most people would agree with now, but they may also be generating the winds that bring the rains to places, especially uh, in the interiors of continents. So I read an article for that, for, about that for you know, the top science journal, Science in the US, which is like, uh, you know, science and nature are the two so top science journals and I got that published so I, you know they were keen on it as an idea and I think it is it's it's still in play I wouldn't say that it's the consensus anymore but it's um, it's just another example of how we're discovering the ways that trees by the billion big forests really do you know they don't just live on a landscape they, they just make the climate they make the environment in which they live yeah it's really fascinating as well the information you put in the book about the albedo effect, albedo, albedo, I'm never sure how to say it, that uh, even if you plant lots of trees, the trees, if they're dark, are just going to kind of um, absorb heat from the sun to create this little, the image you have of the trees in the north having a little warm blanket to put on was very charming, I thought. Yeah, it's 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 a bit worrying because I mean, we're we're all used to saying, well, look, you know, more trees is going to be great. They'll capture more carbon. It'll be it will it will help reduce climate change because there'll be less carbon left in the atmosphere and it'll bring down temperatures. Well, that that's basically true, and it's it's very true in the tropics, but it's not quite so. The further north you go, the less true it gets. And by the time you get into sort of Siberian regions, it's probably not true at all. Because it's, as you say, it's albedo, the reflectivity of the surface of the land. If you had snow, especially, if you've got snow cover or, or any, any kind of light surface, if you plant trees there or trees start growing there because the world's getting warmer or whatever the reason, if the trees suddenly turn up there, then that's a, the canopy of the tree is very dark. And that means it absorbs heat, the solar radiation coming in and distributes it into the atmosphere and basically warms the lower atmosphere. So actually, this is true of any tree, any set of trees, any forest. It, it's, it's taking carbon, so it's having a cool effect because it's capturing carbon, but it's also probably making the, the land surface darker. Uh, most tree surfaces, most tree canopies are dark. And in that way, it's actually having a warm effect. So the question is, what's the balance? Now, in the tropics, it's pretty much always true that the, the cooling effect for the forest is the dominant one. But if you go into the far north where the tree where the difference between the color of the tree canopy and the color of snow say in winter is obviously very big so the albedo difference is big and the trees are only growing very slowly even now um, so they're not taking up carbon very fast then the balance is the other way around um, and the forests actually having an overall warming effect and there are some desert regions even in even in tropical areas where it's much the same again because the trees are replacing very light sand and they're not growing very fast because it's very dry. Uh, so again, you, could, you can have the same effect, the warming effect. 
So while I'm in favour of more trees, and there are lots of reasons to have more trees, and they're good for the climate in lots and lots of ways, we cannot assume that they will always reduce climate change. Well, yeah, it's, it's hard because it's not necessarily an easy message to be like, tree, always good. I'd, I'd love it if it were true, but it's not always completely true. I mean, trees are still good. You know, I'm not, you know, we do need more trees, but we can't, you could never assume. I'm a bit of an old sort of science geek. You know, I, I like to go where the data is. And sometimes the data doesn't tell me what I, what I really want to learn. The book is kind of mainly focused on forests, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about urban trees, because there's quite a lot of noise about trees in urban areas and kind of regreening and urban forests. And again, it's one of these things where you think, you know, more greenery in cities is always going to be a good idea. But then um, it can be, you know, talking to landscape architects, it's quite difficult and like not every species will thrive it's sometimes they need a lot of water they need so much maintenance especially this kind of obsession with green walls things die so quickly that it's almost cancelling out any benefits i was wondering what what you thought about urban greenery projects i'm in favor of urban greening uh, it's good for humans i mean you know we're happier if we have greenery around and trees especially i mean you know a park is one thing but a park with lots of trees makes us makes us happier it's true it also makes us cooler because, you know, they do cool, cool things down, both by shade, but also just cooling the air. They're good for urban wildlife. I'm a great fan of the amount of, you know, um, not everybody loves their foxes and their grey squirrels. But I mean, I'm a great fan of urban wildlife and the more wildlife we can have in cities, the better. Um, so now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of all that. I mean, I live in London. There is one tree for every human in London. You know, it's quite, um, it's not something which everybody would, many people would be surprised by. I'm really interested to know your research process for this book. Was this drawing on kind of years and years of notes from your reporting? Did you do any kind of special trips or return trips when you were when you were writing this book? Yeah, it, it does draw on on my. You know, I've been you know traveling to sort of Borneo and places. I mean, not on long trips, but I mean at least on short trips for like thirty years now. So I went to places where um, you know there were first time I went there there were covered in rainforest and the second time I went there the deforesters were in and they were chopping everything down and the third time I went there the whole place was covered in palm oil and you couldn't see a tree anywhere so I've seen places like that so I'm, I'm kind of reporting on what I've seen as a reporter over the years but I'm also um, been looking at some of the themes like land grabbing and all those kind of things and then also looking at the new science so one of the especially for the book I, I did a few I did a few trips um, it was getting into COVID lockdown and things which made it more difficult, but I managed to get in a few trips, um, including my first proper trip to the Amazon. And there, I mean, again, this is, you know, meeting the scientists and seeing what they're doing. There is just short, north of Manaus, a couple of hours north of Manaus on, on a sort of boat ride in the middle of the rainforest, there is the tallest tower in Latin America. It's two feet, they're very proud of this, two feet taller than the Eiffel Tower. And it's quite like the Eiffel Tower, except it doesn't have any lifts. You have to walk all the way up. It's 1,500 steps to the top, which is quite, uh, quite fun. So you go up through the through uh, past the trees and through the canopy, and on, and then you're only you know like a small way up. You go on and on and up. It's about eight times higher than the forest canopy. Uh, you go through this different sort of wind directions and stuff. And they built this so that they could measure what they call the forest's breath. So both the moisture coming off the forest, off the forest canopy, see what's going up into the clouds, but also the weird chemicals that are coming off the, the foliage of the trees, some of which are kind of short-lived, you know, weird chemicals. 
which turn out to be really important in seeding clouds. So we talked about trees making, uh, putting moisture into the air to create rain. We talked about maybe trees making the winds, but it turns out they make the clouds too, not just by the moisture, which of course you need, but also provide the sort of seed particles around which droplets of water will form. And you need those to create the clouds. And, you know, the droplets get heavy enough to fall as rain downwind. So they're actually doing that as well. They're creating the clouds. Um, this weird sort of chemistry. Now, why they do that, I don't know. Nobody's quite sure, but maybe it's a kind of almost a, a like a sort of Gaian kind of process of wanting to maintain the environment that the trees need in order to grow. But for whatever reason, they're, they're doing that too. Uh, so I really like that because it's a really natural process that people haven't thought much about, except a few scientists have thought about it, and they built this huge tower. It was a German project. Great German scientists doing this. And I met, I met the guy who'd, who'd, who'd come up with the idea at the top of the tower, which, which is great. And we talked about it and all the science behind it. So that was, that was perhaps the highlight of the trip. But I also going around the Amazon, I went onto the sort of forest boundary where, you know, the, the soy farms come up against the rainforest and uh, the, the big farms owned by the big guys with, you know, billionaires in Sao Paulo come, there's the fence and then the other, that's their farm and the other side of the fence is an indigenous reserve uh, full of trees. So all those like, like political things about who owns the land in the Amazon. So I did all that stuff. So yeah, it was a fun trip. It was a fun. So the, the the book, as you as you guessed, is a mixture of sort of my uh, my sort of greatest hits from the past, if you like. I mean, stuff I've done before and how I've seen it play out, um, and some political stuff, and then just some reporting of what I see now. So I was yeah, I was quite pleased with it. It's it's still a work in progress. I'm still finding out new things, but yeah, I enjoyed doing it for sure. Thank you so much for talking with us today for Words on Words. Words on Wood, a podcast made by Desenio in collaboration with and supported by AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council. Your host has been me, India Block, and it's been produced by Evie Hall and edited by Lara Chapman.